Given the makeup of this class, I think we can have uh, quite a lot of discussion. Um, I, I promise I'm not going to be presenting anything uh, overly shocking or hopefully in any way <clears throat> um, risque, theologically or otherwise, but more to the point, um, something that we need to be doing in the church, and I think we are doing in our churches to one degree or another, but that's no reason not to talk about it, not to continue uh, this, this process of, of discipleship. So we've got a lot of definitions of discipleship and a lot of books on discipleship, and they don't even all agree on how they're using the term, right? So um, has anybody ever read or heard of Bonhoeffer's Cost of a Disciple? Or the co- is it disciple? Is it cost of Discipleship? Something like that. Anyway, and so that's this picture of discipleship. You know, well, let's just talk about these. These are some books that I will recommend on the discipleship process as we're going to use it today, okay? So um, anytime you get dealing with word definitions, it's not so much like we might think, you know, wrong definitions versus right definitions because there'll just be a list of definitions in which we might use something culturally. So we could, you know, look back at a a resource like a a lexicon resource and say, hey, look, that definition for this word isn't used in Greek and say that, so that would be wrong. But as we're talking about the word discipleship in terms of just how we use English, we have to recognize there's a lot of different ways that it's used. These are the books, or some books, sorry, none of them will I uh, oversell except for maybe this first one, Uh, The Master Plan for Evangelism by Robert Coleman. I will tell you, he is not from our um, background. He's not from our theological ilk. And it comes out quite a few times. Um, but this book was written, I believe, in the 60s or 70s. And I didn't bring my copy because I'm, copy I'm traveling or uh, traveling too far to bring extra stuff. But um, you can find it free on the internet if you're, and not illegally, it's, it's in the, <laughs> if you learn how to steal, your copy costs nothing. No, uh, you can find it absolutely for free in the public domain, um, or you can buy a copy online, used copies everywhere. It's become sort of a classic. It's one of those small, important books, right, like Law and Grace by Alva McLean, that, that are tiny, but they pack a huge punch. So that's going to be the bulk of what we did. This was introduced to me as I was raised in a ministry called Young Life, which is an evangelistic ministry that started to recognize that while the big tent ministries of previous years, you know, your Billy Graham crusades, your, hey, let's just tell everybody to come on and hear the gospel, find out, you know, what terrible sinners they are and why they need a savior, right? That process hasn't worked for years, right? I mean, can you imagine putting up a, just putting up a tent and having non-Christians flock to the tent? It's just not the world that we're in now. And so even before that became the case, uh, Coleman and others were recognizing that the real way into people's lives is through relationships and through intentionally spending time with people in that context. So uh, Master Plan of Evangelism is kind of a short and punchy uh, challenge to do that. And what we're going to do is we're going to expand that out. Now, he has uh, written another book called Master Plan of Discipleship, which I think is basically just a, a transmission of these ideas to the discipleship process. But we also are pointing out the need to think in terms of building up leadership, and that's our goal. So, A.B. Bruce, if you're looking for a kind of a classic golden age of Bible study 
resource. It's big and thick, and it's written in that kind of old school uh, style of, of exhaustive Bible study. It's an intense read. That's what I mean to say. Um, also can be found absolutely for free because uh, it's in the common... It's not the Commonwealth. What's it in? The public domain. So Commonwealth is different. That's, that's Canada. Okay. So um, which we're remarkably close to, just in case the Commonwealth ever turns against us again. Um, so that is a great book, and it's just like Master Plan of Evangelism, again, but with greater depth. It's talking about, it's talking about looking at the life of Jesus Christ, his relationship with the disciples, and see if we can discern some good lessons from how Jesus taught and shaped these men who would shape the world by the power of God. Biblical discipleship uses the term in the other manner by Daniel Gefrick. It's a rather recent book. He is in camp. He is of our ilk. You might find something in there that you're like, "Mm, it's not quite where I'm at. But it is a really good book, um, more so along the second line of something you might go over in a discipleship type relationship. Um, But it We'll talk about this later. The disciple-making pastor, back to definition one, the process through which two people grow, or one person invests in another. Um, a good one, transforming discipleship in, by Ogden and cultivating a life for God are, are both quite all, right, quite all right. Again, if you just wanted more people and more people's thoughts on this, this would be the short list that I would, you know, if we're teaching a college course on this topic, I would put all these in your hand. So... Let's talk about that word problem a little bit. There's all sorts of different uh, uses for discipleship. First of all, there's the idea of discipleship as salvation, right? And this comes from the, uh, the under- historically understandable misunderstanding <laughs> that somehow what Matthew's talking about is about us getting saved, phase one. And right, this is where the Lordshippers go off, and this is where Bonhoeffer came up. He came up with that disgusting phrase that we should all, you know, clean, cleanse from our palate, cheap grace, right? That idea that somehow if you're not a disciple, you're not saved, and that's how you need to get a disciple. You need to take off your, or whatever, put on your cross daily. You need to do all this stuff. And once you've done all that stuff, which is all very unclear as to whether you've done it well enough or hard enough, uh, then you might, might could be saved, right? Um, so this version of discipleship confounds discipleship with salvation and then makes all sorts of problems because, of course, you never know you're saved by that measure um, and you're dealing with a lot of problems in terms of certain things that Jesus would have done and taught in the context of Israel that aren't appropriate for church-age discipleship relationships. So that is a problem that we face. And then you've got discipleship as growth, which is more the way Gepfrick uses it. Uh, and it's, again, a great, um, a great uh, overview of how we grow spiritually, I guess would be the simplest terms. Um, and this kind of discipleship is... At, rightly understood as we're being a disciple of Jesus or retu- becoming disciples of Christ. We're followers of and learning from him. Uh, there are those who will say in our camp that discipleship is totally inappropriate for the church because that was Jesus dealing with Israel. And so the discipleship process was something that is exclusive to Israel, right? Has anybody heard this viewpoint? Okay, yeah, this, this, this one comes up. Uh, not a ton, a ton, but often enough, right? To where you'd see people saying, well, I don't, I don't know about that discipleship thing. And the reason why is that they're responding to, I think in large part, they're just responding to this next one, which is discipleship in a strict cultural context. And that is to say that if we want to make disciples like Jesus made disciples, we're going to go back and find out 
all the details of discipleship in the context of the first century or wherever, maybe sometimes just Israel in general. And it was a very uh, tradition-bound, high-standard institution. I mean, if you were going to be the disciple of a rabbi, then you would essentially forfeit your dedication to your earthly father and transfer it to the rabbi. And you would walk with him and stand, you know, sit at his feet. And there was almost a, a worshipful relationship in, the, in that, yeah, version of or vision of discipleship. So you can imagine, of course, people taking that to the nth degree and saying, look, this is how discipleship's done. You've got to get someone to move into your house and sit at your feet and basically be your slave. And, and then they'll be disciples. And so this group, I think, is responding to this group saying, look, we, this, this, this doesn't make sense. And so maybe we just remove discipleship altogether. But um, when we look at discipleship, we want to make a clear uh, distinction as to what we mean. So we have a couple more, and this is the, the discipleship that I'll be using today. So I want to point it out. I'm not saying that this guy's wrong, or this guy's wrong, or this guy's wrong about his use of discipleship, because that's just the word he's using to describe whatever context that they're after, right? So, and I think a lot of confusion comes because we just don't define our terms, right? So someone talks about living the disciple life, they're talking about that kind of lordship view of like, are you doing good enough, right? And even in our movement, in order to help reclaim Matthew, we'll say, well, no, 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 he's not talking about salvation, he's talking about discipleship. So then they do import, directly import, Matthew into the Christian life. And that's problematic because Matthew's not about the Christian life. Matthew is about the training of the 12 disciples. Matthew is about the presentation of the Messiah. Matthew's primary goal was not to teach us how to grow spiritually. And just because we're so well biblically educated, where would you go to teach someone to grow spiritually? Can you think of some passages that might be super helpful? Fruit of the Spirit. Yeah. Colossians 3, Galatians, yep. Yeah. Mm hmm. Romans 6, 7, and 8. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot. Titus. Titus. Absolutely. I'm hearing you say the epistles. Yeah. That's right. That, that is where we get the information about how we spiritually grow. We don't report back to Matthew, although there are wonderful things that we can, um, we can apply, certainly, to our spiritual life as well, indirectly. Uh, but we don't go to Matthew to find out what was Jesus' discipleship program for that. Uh, and then put that into... Uh, so... Having said all this, here's how I'm going to use the word discipleship today. Um, and I don't want to make it sound like this is standardized, but it's just how we're going to talk about it today. And if you have a problem with that, every time I say discipleship, you just hear mentorship. Okay? And we'll be fine. If you have an issue with magic words, then that'll be just great. So... A uh, process that occurs between two or more people in which a mentor teaches, coaches, and trains a mentee on an individual or group basis. Okay? So here is where I think that we in our movement, and I, I'm not making any indictment on, on DBC or Fort Collins Bible Church where I'm from, I think in our movement at large, we have oftentimes fallen off into this idea that somehow the exclusive feature of a, a discipleship relationship in this sense is simply transferring information. I'm going to put forth to you that while trans transfer of information is an absolute necessity in the Christian life, there's actually more to this discipleship process than just moving understanding from one mind to the other. And so um, 
uh, yeah, so the Christian life demands learning, but also demands a correct application of that knowledge in daily life. Uh, we've all seen, if not only in the mirror, that guy who knows so much, or that gal who knows so much about the Bible, but it's not reflected in their daily life, their choices, their ability to trust in the Lord. Right? That's a thing, right? And so, hopefully, in the body of Christ, we have lots of people who are encouraging us to actually work that out. And like our children are the best for this. Like, Dad, you just said that we shouldn't worry and trust God. Like, yes, I did. And I said, yeah, but you were just freaking out. Like. Darn it, child. Stop seeing things. <laughs> yeah, so. Mm. So it is. Identifying principles and practices that were utilized by Jesus Christ in the training of the, concept, or training of the 12 disciples and appropriating them into the church context. So, again, this is uh, something that we want to be very clear about what we're doing so that we do it properly, right? We could try to go through and make some sort of uh, rules or, or some sort of set of things to say, well, Jesus did it. We always need to do it the way Jesus did it. I don't want to do that today. That's not our goal. Our goal is to look at the way that Jesus Christ interacted with the people who were most important to him and ask what principles we can draw and apply into our ministry of life. And for the purposes of this discussion, you are absolutely a disciple maker. I mean, the fact that you're here at this ministry conference shows that you probably are active in ministry. But every believer is meant to be encouraging one another in this manner. So this isn't a, a group of some people or a small group of people. This is meant to be a part of our mission. Uh, sorry, this investment is meant to be a part of our mission as we utilize our gifts, as we teach the word of God and so on and so forth. This is hopefully just a chance for us to take this information and... Um, and, and, and just make some nice observations and applications and whatever time we have at the end, we will discuss it. So we're going to look at these, and this is straight out of um, Master Plan of Evangelism by Coleman. Look at these eight, uh, eight different ideas. Now, they're not cumulative and they're not order, but uh, they do sort of... Wildly, mildly build on each other. So it starts with selection, that's the individual choosing intentionally who you are going to invest in. There's association, that's the process of being with them. Consecration, that is uh, making sure that the relationship is uh, directed in the right manner. Impartation, giving to them demonstration, showing them things, a delegation, giving them tasks, supervision, reviewing their performance on those tasks, and finally reproduction, helping them to become a disciple maker. So the question is, is do you have a plan? Just as a building is constructed according to a plan for its use, so everything we, must, we do must have a purpose. Otherwise, our activity can be lost in aimlessness and confusion. So this is, uh, again, from Robert Coleman, as he points out. And this is probably the part where we fall apart most frequently. Do you have a plan? Do you have a list of things that you are personally able to encourage someone in and build them and bring them along in? Whether it's, you know, an older woman discipling or investing in a younger woman or an older man discipling in a younger man or perhaps investing in someone with a very, view to a very specific type of service, like preparing them to teach the word or preparing them to serve in the, uh, in the kitchen or in the children's ministry, right? Do you have a goal and do you have a plan that's going to get you to that goal? Because one of the most difficult things from the mentee or the student's standpoint is if your teacher doesn't have a goal for you, 
right? Doesn't know what they want you to become, right? So this is a program that you want them to finish or some maybe list of basics of the faith and practice. I'm sure you all, I hope, because that's not what I have prepared for you, uh, there are numerous resources out there to go over um, things. What we were did in Young Life, again, before I was biblically educated, so I'm not recommending these per se. There was a demand for discipleship books. They were just basics of the faith. They had little, like, you look up a passage, you answer a question, then you come together and talk about it as a group. Um, well, it had some theological, especially you got into the last book, I think the fifth book, had some real theological challenges that were, it was lordshipy and obnoxious. Uh, but it was still a good enough entry-level discussion point that demanded some work on their part that enabled you to have that um, that relationship in place. So if you don't have something like that, if your church doesn't already have something, I know DBC does and does and does, um, then I would highly recommend, hey, come on in. We're going to do the stare at him thing, stare at her thing, but I can't, I can't do that to Sam. Okay. That's right, 13 and up that you stare at him. That's right, there's a, there's a threshold. <laughs> So, um, and, and, and today's discussion will hopefully give us some philosoph- philosophical ideas about what your plan is, but you got to make your plan. you got to know what your plan is and be ready to go. And so in the case of Coleman's, you know, uh, analyst analysis of Christ's life, it starts with selection, okay? So Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the eternal God of very God, is unlimited in time and space. And then he condescends and comes down and lives as one of us. And all of a sudden, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has, in this sense, a limited number of hours in each day, a limited number of days in each week, and a limited, number of ta- limited amount of time before he would complete his task and go, that is to say, he would die for the sin of the world and be taken back up and again and up to heaven again. And he had some really important work to do with these disciples to get them ready for what was going to come in their lives, right? Their preparation for their special task was one of the major purposes of Christ's ministry or Christ's time, why he didn't just open up with the crucifixion, right? I mean, couldn't we have done it that way? We wanted to just get directly to whatever the of-age moment, have him just uh, baptized by John and just immediately get him killed. Intro, outro. He pays for the sin of the world. We're good. But there was something else that needed to happen, clearly. And that was these, uh, this, this investment in these 12 other people. So rather than just running random seminars or open-air classes, which he did, he did run those, he selected 12 men to do the work. Of those 12, three were given even greater access to him, Peter, James, and John. So you can go through and look at all the times Peter, James, and John are invited to do something that no one else is, uh, is, is allowed or interv- invited to do, like to go up onto the Mount of Transfiguration, or when the uh, dead girl is going to be raised, he just has those three come in. So uh, they got to see just a little bit more of him, and yet we see that he did not neglect the masses, but we want to ask, why in the world did he do that? See, he did, again, he didn't stop reaching out to the masses. He didn't stop preaching to the masses, but he cut this limited group of people. Now, we don't know, but it could well be that there were a bunch of people standing around the outside that would have loved to be in that inner circle. But he chose 12 and only 12 to invest in in this fashion. So... What that teaches us, what that tells us, I believe, is that Jesus recognized the reality that you can have a minimal impact with a lot of people or a maximum impact with a few people. 
Think of whoever raised you, your mother, your father, whatever it is. What is the level of impact on their life compared to, say, of, of their life and your life, right? Your mom or your dad's investment in you or impact on you compared to, you know, a Billy Graham. Like, he might have impacted a lot of people, but your mom probably means more to you. Even, even if you met Christ through Billy Graham's ministry, you'd say, oh, yeah, well, he's where the gospel came from. But I still, you know, remember my mom's re bread recipe. I still learned to work wood from my dad. I still, whatever it is, right? You can have this opportunity in life to try to throw your influence out to the masses. And by the way, let me just be old and crotchety and awful here for a minute. I think that this whole new thing of everybody wanting to get internet famous and YouTube famous is related to somehow to, one, the idea that if millions of people knew you and approved you that you'd be better, but two, to keep us from the important and painful relationships, sometimes painful, of, that we're really investing in, where we know and are really known, where people see through us, right? And so it's interesting because I was talking to this amazing missionary when I was down in Brazil. He's uh, two grads from... Um, What's it called? Ethnos 360 now, but it was New Tribes. And they moved to Brazil along, they married twin sisters, they weren't friends beforehand. Why am I giving you all this information? You don't need it. They, the point is, is that they worked really hard to put together a fantastic resource. It's called Tetelestai. It is an awesome, like, movement. If you know John Cross's style, that all comes from, um, from New Tribes. Uh, it's a great video series with good introductions and um, just great, really, I'm not sure, I'm sure not impeccable, but great discussion guides and you can get a group together. And he said to me, you know, however many, 10, 15 years ago, they started working on it. So we just want to have, a, a, we just wanted to have a bigger impact on the body of Christ rather than just focus on our people here with us in Brazil. He said, I'm glad we did it, but I've changed my mind about that in terms of what would have been the, what's the best way to spend your time. So it's cool because one, he didn't obviously rebuke his, or, you know, reject what he'd done before. It's amazing. But fascinatingly, even now as he's further along in his career, he goes, I think maybe those the small group studies, those home studies, that small impact of your circle of friends that you truly show love and interact with has the bigger, uh, bigger impact. So he didn't like this, but he dedicated himself more intensely to his ministry as it went on. So if we're going to look at this um, graphically, we could say here it is in the, the three is this inner circle, Peter, James, and John. The 12 apostles are his next rung out and the 72 is this uh, circle outside. And so you notice whenever he's investing, and then the masses out here, whenever he's investing in the masses, who's also getting some? Well, these three circles, right? If he's investing in 72, who's there? Well, these two are there. So it's not as if he's dealing with three separate groups of people, but rather in, in the course of Christ's life was because when he was teaching the masses, he was also teaching the disciples. And when he was teaching the twelve, he was also teaching the three. And Peter, James, and John, even, even though James seems to leave the scene rather quickly in the book of Acts, uh, Peter and John remain stalwart uh, pillars of the early church in getting it started. So the challenge, the encouragement, is to start thinking of your life this way. Not in terms of slavishly attaching yourself to the numbers. Please don't do that. Because you don't probably have the freedom to take whoever your 12 are and go on a three-year camping trip, right? You've got other stuff you've got to do. You've got other ways you've got to spend your time feeding your family and so on and so forth. But if, you continue, if we can accept the idea to think strategically about who you're going to invest in in terms of three people, or maybe just one person, 
or two people. I mean, Jesus had 12, but he's Jesus. So maybe you start with six. You know, you're only half as good as Jesus. And then you can work up. Okay. This is theologically so problematic. We're going to retreat forthwith and say, this is the idea. Rather than just kind of willy-nilly going into our lives and going, who can I positively impact today? What if we decided today I am going to impact this person? Or over the next two or three years, I want to dedicate myself to this person. And oh, by the way, if you've got kids or a husband or a wife, that's number one to how many kids do you have? A lot. Twelve? You've got a whole... You've got, <laughs> you've got your six easy, right? And, and so I want to encourage us to think this way because honestly the church is hemorrhaging young people as they come to the next generation and I think in a large part of that is if their parents were spiritually engaged in their church sometimes they overlooked their dedication to their family members right and as a pastor I can say I feel this pressure every single day and every single week and it's it's rough but just remember whoever God gave you in that first circle your family is your first circle and don't and, and this this is a tough circle, right? Because they see every time you blow it. They see every like they're they're the ones. That, so I think that's why a lot of times we do we give up and we want to go preach to strangers because they might still think we're pretty good. But but our kids and our wives and our husbands or whatever it is they we, they know where we're uh, problematic. So um, pushing through that, as we'll see, is going to be more important than um, just going in like yeah scorched earth policy and just moving on. Okay, it all started, Coleman says, by Jesus calling a few men to follow him. This revealed immediately the direction his evangelistic strategy would take. His concern was not with programs to reach the multitudes, but with men whom the multitudes would follow. So, this idea that we're meant to, or that, that at least... I think we could say, (laughs) we're meant to find those specific people to train and encourage, meant that instead of just putting out some sort of curriculum, Jesus had human beings that had been so invested with an understanding of his character and his plan and his vision that they were able to go out and make their own applications in their own lives as the Lord opened up their ministries to them. Does that stand to reason? That makes sense? So, again, we're not building you know, programs or, or again, there's nothing wrong with using a curriculum of some kind. There's plenty of good ones out there. But this realization that if you have that ultimate vision for the person who you're meeting with, and by the way, does anybody know when the disciples became believers? Yeah, me neither. I have no clue. I, I, I could put it somewhere around the resurrection, I guess, but who knows what that process was like. They came to understand that he was Christ, but they're, they're, appreciation of that really wasn't full until at least the resurrection, right? So this person doesn't have to be a believer, right? They don't have to be a person who's already a Christian. In fact, that's why this is called the book that uh, Coleman writes, is The Master Plan of Evangelism, is saying instead of thinking about everybody as a one-shot kill, you know, like, oh, I got the gospel, got the gospel, got the gospel, got the gospel, recognizing that if you put, put, picked one person and invested in them, an unbeliever and invested in them and showed them the love of Christ and involved them, and again, some of this will break down, um, but it's, it's an effective method for evangelism and ultimately making what I believe God wants us to make, which is not converts, but disciples, right? So we'll talk more about that. Here's another good Coleman quote. 
It says, uh, what is more revealing about the, these men is that at first they do not impress us as being key men. None of them occupied prominent places in the synagogue, nor did any of them belong to the Levitical priesthood. For the most part, they were common laboring men, probably having no professional training beyond the rudiments of knowledge necessary for their vocation. Perhaps a few of them came from families that some considered me, of some considerable means, such as the sons of Zebedee, but none of them could have been considered wealthy. They had no academic degrees in the arts and philosophies uh, of, the, of their day. Like their master, their formal education consisted only of the synagogue schools. Most, most of them were raised in the poor section of the country around Galilee. Apparently, the only one of the twelve who came from a more refined region of, of Judea was Judas Iscariot. By any standard of sophisticated culture then and now, they would surely have been considered as rather ragged collection of souls. One might wonder how Jesus could ever use them. They were impulsive, temperamental, easily offended, and had the prejudice, all the prejudices of their environment. In short, these men selected by the Lord to be his assistants represented an average cross-section of the society of their day, not the kind of group one would expect to win the world for Christ. So, I hope the profoundness of this is clear. I think especially as we're looking for, uh, you know, kind of pegging out people who are going to be successful or great in ministry, we do have sort of a, well, you know, he doesn't have to be gorgeous, but he ought to be at least not hideous because you've got to look at him, right? And, he, you know, he doesn't have to be the, the most eloquent person, but he better not, you know, like stumble over his words. And these are not the things that Christ seemed to prioritize at all. He took the common, average, everyday folks. Why? Because the common, average, everyday folk, and below for that matter, are the ones whom Christ can use to bring glory to himself most fully. Because it's not about, you could never confuse them and their talents and their wonder of their goodness with the fact that they're being used by Almighty God. Right? So as you're going into this selection process and, and choosing in your life who you're going to invest in, um, be mindful of the of the standards that Christ seemed to have. It wasn't the tallest, the most best-looking, the most wealthy, the ones who could benefit his ministry most obviously from a worldly perspective, but instead from a uh, far more important rubric or metric. Um, when we ask, how did Jesus select those 12? We look at Luke 5, 1 through 11. And again, my apologies for the small print. I was warned. I just ignored the warning. But... Uh, can, you, can you make it bigger? Does that work, or do we already try Just that? Pull it back. Sure. Pull, pull it back. No, pull it back. In the meantime, anyone with a Bible, if you want to turn to Luke 1, 5, 1 through 11, and whoever... Oh, yeah! See? It's so good to have the smart people around. It's not why we love you. It's just why we're thankful for you. Thanks, Robert. Appreciate it. Good idea. Okay, who's got us? Only one guy. Okay, now we're getting up to two. Oh, you're already there. Come on. You were hiding. Will you read it for us, please? Yes, please. One through eleven? Yes, if you wouldn't mind. So it was as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God that he stood by the lake, the center, and saw two boats standing by the lake. But the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one boat, one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to 
put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and taught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. When he had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they, so they signaled to their partners uh, in, in the other boat to come and help, and they came and filled both the boats so that the, they began to sink. When Simon and Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus, and he saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of the fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who uh, were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid, for now on you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. Excellent. Thank you very much. I adore this account. But first of all, we need to dispel something that I'm sure you're already dispelled. Has it ever come into your mind that maybe there's some things that happened that weren't recorded in the Bible? Oh, good. So, so the idea that Jesus is working in this region and we have a certain select amount of interactions between Jesus and, say, Peter and so on and so forth doesn't mean that those were the only interactions that they had, right? Jesus surely was well-known and Peter was probably, or very very probably, seen around his early movement before the selection, uh, his selection as a disciple. But what I really appreciate about this is, so, so the idea that they were total strangers to one another at this point is a little unrealistic. But what I really adore about this is that at this moment, right, Simon Peter, if I were in Simon Peter's shoes, I'd probably be tempted to go, that's really cool. Thanks, Jesus. Like, you made us rich for a day. This is really outstanding. Like, I thought I was wasting my time. Now, you remember when uh, the fishermen in the Sea of Galilee would fish at night. And so he's coming in at the end of the fishing day, and Jesus is like, hey, I, I need to use your boat so that I can make a good natural amphitheater. So he's at the end of a long work day. They've got plenty to do, right? And it sounds like may or may not have been a very a very uh, successful day, night, evening at work, although we don't know. And so then when Jesus tells him as a, as a sort of payment for his, you know, doing this extra work at the end of his work day, which is the morning, uh, and, and makes this thing happen, it's extra miraculous because the way that they were fishing, they didn't have see-through nets, right? They didn't have the sort of like monofilament type stuff. So the reason why they fished at night is that the fish would swim into the netting without seeing it because it's dark right but here the idea of just pushing back a little bit rather than going into the deep water you're supposed to go and dropping the net was just an absurd idea and so peter because of his vocation would be particularly keen to understand the nature of this miracle did god just change did i'm sorry did jesus this guy who they thought was just a rabbi a teacher did he just make the impossible possible right here in my presence He'd fished enough to know that that doesn't, that, it's not like, oh, that never happens. No, that really never happens. And so he sees this, he witnesses this, and as, as he is now overflowing with money, you know, money, or fish are coming into his thing, he doesn't even begin to think, it seems, about the financial gain of what he's gotten. He realizes that he's sitting in the presence of something far, someone far greater than he would have believed. And he responds, Department from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. So a really cool kind of Isaiah-like encounter with 
a holy God. But Jesus takes that moment, and I do believe that this is intentional in the text here, to say that Peter was so humbled before the holiness of Jesus Christ, before the power of Jesus Christ, that all of a sudden he's like, okay, you are on my list. You are invited. And this was a feature of the first century, first, first century Judaism and continuing on into the rest, much of the rest of early Judaism, that if you got invited to study with a rabbi, that was like being invited to go to college on a full-ride scholarship. It wasn't something that you could just go and, well, you could ask, but you wouldn't be ne- necessarily be accepted just on that basis. So Jesus' invitation is very official, to be sure, um, but still just introductory in that sense. So here's Luke 6, 12 through 16. Uh, would someone mind reading? Right off the screen if you care to. Not all at once now. Thanks, Poochie. One of those things, Jesus went out from Mount Side to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and t- chose twelve of them. And he also designated apostles Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, P- uh, John, John, Philip, Bartholomew, uh, Matthew, Thomas, uh, James, son of Aphias, Af- uh, uh, Simon, who was called a zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Okay. Now, We're going to be treading on slightly dangerous ground. Theologically, don't throw stones. But um, as we've seen, Jesus had had multiple interactions. Now, we know in his divinity and his godhood that he certainly knew them all the way down to the core. And yet, here Jesus Christ does two things that I think are just mind-blowing. One, he gets to know these people before he selects them. He's not just picking out of a hat or taking the first 12 comers. He seems to have had multiple interactions like this one with Peter before he even makes this full invitation or statement or declaration or designation, I guess I should say, of his apostles. The next thing that I think is really, really interesting is that he spends the whole night in prayer. He's Jesus. You think he could trust his gut? Like I do. And to be honest, I trust my gut a lot more than this text would suggest that I should. So, as we are considering how we are going to invest our lives in others, and this concept of selection, of instead of just kind of rolling and bumping into who we bump into, or letting, what is it that we tell our kids, right? You choose your friends, don't let your friends choose you, right? Don't just get caught up in the wrong crowd, but be a, be a part of that process of choosing who you want to hang out with. It's the same thing here. Um, so, the idea of making that investment... Making that intentional choice, it could take time. It could take, you might meet someone and say, it take months. I know I'm not saying you might not meet someone and immediately say, hey, we need to get together for Bible study. It's fine. But it's worth it. You're going to invest significant amounts of time and energy and care and heartache into this person. So make sure they are the right type of person. And by the right type of person, I'm not suggesting that there's people who God doesn't want to be saved, but there are people who are ready to grow and ready to be built into and ready to go that direction. There's other people who, for whatever reason, are not ready yet. And you only have so much time. So choose the right ones. Coleman again says we must decide where we want our ministry to, uh, to count. In the momentary applause of popular recognition or in the reprodu- reproduction of our lives in a few chosen people, who will carry on our work after we have gone? Really, it is a question of which generation we are living for. So it's one of my favorite things to get to say because it makes me feel so holy and so 
personal, personally what? safe. It's that Jesus what? selected fat men. <laughs> I feel safe. I feel good. But fat in this sense. <laughs> he chose men who were faithful. They were faithful to the cause. Even Judas, who up to his moment of rebellion, was faithful to the cause. He was there. He chose men who were available, right? He didn't uh, go around scamming out the people who were already you know, successful or big in society. He chose the people who were available to be uh, built into and built up for his purpose. And they were teachable. He chose people who, well, I'm sure there were times that they rejected or fought against, you know, like questioned, that's the way we'd look at it, questioned what Jesus was saying, that they were ultimately of teachable hearts. So as you're thinking about the people in whom you will invest, the individual, that one, that two, that three, that four people, whatever it is, over the course of three years, five years, or a lifetime, look for people who are of faithful character. Doesn't that sound just like what uh, Paul wrote to Timothy? Faithful men who indeed turn to each other's also. Available, that they're willing to make time, and they're teachable. This isn't a two out of three situation. If a person is faithful and teachable, but not available, then you won't have time to invest in them. You're just going to be frustrated. They're always calling it off because they're busy. There's another thing. There's another party, another church event. That's not your guy. That's not your gal. They're, they're available and teachable, but they're not faithful. Boy, that's the worst. This is, these are the people who are not the worst. <laughs> they've got tons of time tons of availability but if they're not faithful and or teachable then you're going to wind up either with them happy to learn and learn and learn but never apply nightmare situation or they're not teachable you're going to spend tons of time with them but they really aren't learning anything they're really not taking anything in because they think that they are already got it right so how will you choose to whom you will give your time uh, this isn't all that profound a question, but I think in today's world it is even more uh, important for us to think about. Um, so, the next step or the next feature that Coleman brings up is association. And we know what association is. It's spending time with them. So here's Coleman again. says, having called his men, Jesus made a practice of being with them. This was the essence of his training program, just letting his disciples follow him. When one stops to think of it, this was an incredibly simple way of doing it. Jesus had no formal school, no seminaries, no outline course of study, no periodic membership classes in which he enrolled his followers. None of these highly organized procedures considered so necessary today entered into his ministry. Amazing as it may seem, all Jesus did to these men, to teach these men, was his way to draw them close to himself. He was his own school and curriculum, the natural informality. So they, um, sorry, that must have continued on. I must have gotten a bad copy and paste over from my Kindle edition. But this idea that Jesus made a practice of being with them. Class was always in session because they were always with him. Shows that whatever, again, you might sit down to regular discipleship time where you go over a book or a curriculum together but if that's your only touch point if that's your only investment point with this person you're not really making disciples you're just teaching them something you're just transferring the information can i say it again hugely important part of christianity but if you're not also going out and playing volleyball or mini putt with them if you're not also going to wash the car with them or whatever it is that you do and, and, and enjoying that shared life, then they're not seeing what your faith truly looks like when translated out to the, day, the normal affairs of daily living, right? 
They need to see how you treat the waiter. They need to see how you remember the gas station attendant's name. They need to see how the love of Christ extends out to others, right? Going to church together, uh, we'll get into some of more of these things. Um, but does that concept make a reasonable amount of sense? This is why we're picking one or two or three rather than uh, thinking in terms of the 50,000 people we can get to watch our YouTube channel. Because you don't have, you don't, God has not given us the resources to disciple 500 people or 1,000 people. But he's given us the resources to eternally change one or two or three lives at a time. And that is ultimately, I will argue, the more important thing. And I'll go a step further and say that this process produces great church leaders. Whether it's pastors or um, you know, uh, deacons or Sunday school teachers or whatever it is. It produces the type of people who we need in the church. And I'm going to be very frank. I've got a PhD. I did the seminary thing. It does not make pastors. It makes people who can answer questions on tests and write good essays. And nothing wrong with that. To be able to think well and communicate well is important, but it's not the most important thing. And while it's kind of our cultural requirement into vocational ministry, it was never Christ's. It wasn't. And this idea, in my mind, needs to change. Not that I, I, I... we opened a Bible school, much like Gibbs, you know, in our church. I think that that transfer of information is important, and efficiency in that is valuable. But what we need is people who will disciple us. What we need to do is be discipling and investing in people on that level. And every Bible college and um, seminary in the nation will say, no, no, we do do that. And I hope they do, right? That they make relationships. But we can't, we can't say it's the central function of the organization. So, he was with them. Here's Mark 3.14. He appointed the twelve that they may be with him, him and that he might send them out to preach. So, we'll more on that, send them out to preach in just a minute. But we want to ask, how much was he with them? As near as we could tell, Jesus was with them day and night for the better part of three years. So much so that he would withdraw when he needed solitude, and that happened with some frequency. But it seems that he walked, he ate, he worked with them, he was with them day and night. Now, uh, tragically, we're in our modern kind of Western world, we're more separated than ever, right? Some of you might come, like, live in a town, I don't know if Duluth is a town small enough where you come downstairs and your neighbor's just walked into your house and is hanging out in your kitchen, you're like, hey, what's going on? Nope, nope, we draw guns. Yeah. Okay, just see how it works. But, I mean, again, in a lot of other places and throughout uh, history, the idea, and especially in the New Testament time, I mean, you would absolutely wind up with someone peeking through your window and talking to you. And just, there, weren't as much, there wasn't as much separation. We've, we've done that to ourselves. It's part of our lives. There's things we like about it for sure. But for us, it means the new challenge is learning to open up our lives at a new level. As I said, you're not going to have the time very likely, to go on a three-year camping trip. But you are going to have to sacrifice some of our alone time, some of our, my time is mine. And no one understands this better than anyone who's had kids, right? What's the hardest thing for mom? Three years of uninterrupted non-privacy, right? You can't go to the bathroom without little fingers. Mom, are you almost done yet? Right? You're totally at their behest. If they, like... 
Uh, uh, my goodness gracious. And it's why I think we have all the different cages that we have for children. Like you have the one that you can hang on the door. And you're stuck. Goodbye. And you go away. Or, you know, you put them in the other little cage. Like we're just trying to get a little space from their incredible neediness. Well, that is what this process is all about. It's about, on, a, on an emotional level, becoming available to a person and making yourself available to them uh, beyond the normal, common level that we're comfortable with. They traveled to Jerusalem, to Tyre and Sidon, to Capolis, to Amanutha, Perea, and to Caesarea Philippi. So what does that look like in our world? Or maybe how could we do something similar? Again, I'm not calling this an application of the biblical text. I'm not saying that Jesus told us to do this. But how could we copy that behavior? How could you potentially, with a person you're investing in or discipling in, um, yeah, replicate that type of behavior? Any ideas? Bring into something like this. Yeah. yeah! Hey, I'm going to this Bible conference. You want to come? It's a great way. I just bring them along in your life. Mm-hmm. You do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Or, hey, we're going on a family vacation. You want to tag along? Maybe that's possible. Maybe that's not. But those types of... Or, you know, decide that you're going to go on a mission trip of some kind or something to that effect. And again, invite them to come along. He listened to their conversations and put forth instructions, right? He was listening to them talk constantly and was willing to weigh in on what's going on. Undoubtedly, this exposure to Jesus was what convinced them that his character was above all else. It was particularly important. We won't have this ability of this, this freedom. It was particularly important for them because when they were dying for the fact of their testimony of Jesus Christ, they were, must have been convinced all the way down to the core of his character, of his perfection, of his ability to, to be who he claimed to be. And I think that was very much related to or, or confirmed, probably not as much in the miracles as it was in seeing him when when he got up in the morning and seeing him when he you know, went to bed and seeing him deal with the things that he had to deal with, the people that he had to deal with and say, wow, that guy's, that guy's different. That's some, something else. So application, it takes time. This kind of dedication takes a great deal of personal time. Clearly the situation is not identical uh, to that of, the, of Jesus and the apostles, our situation, but the time requirement isn't going anywhere. It's interesting that we will oftentimes gravitate towards what we think is a bigger audience. Mm -hmm. Thinking like, okay, well, that's worth my time because there's going to be, like, I'm going to be able to impact 500 people. But this is not worth my time because I can only impact the one. And yet, I'd encourage us to think differently about this and recognize that where you're putting your time may not actually be the most effective. Because if you can put your time into one person and see that person grow into a more uh, mature Christian or into a believer for that matter, and then all of a sudden you've put someone else out in the world who's able to do that, not just because they came to a class and someone told them how, but because they had it demonstrated in their lives, I think we have a chance to see a real impact impact in this world. And please don't hear me whining against big numbers ministry opportunities. It's, it's a wonderful thing if you can get a lot of people together and have an impact. But recognize that this doesn't come at the expense of that, right? That your ability to make an impact on one person is far uh, going to be a far more profound impact, likely, uh, for good or for ill in that. So um, here is, uh, here's Robert Coleman waxing poetic about that idea. He says, when will the church learn this lesson? Preaching to the masses, although necessary, will never suffice in the work of preparing leaders for evangelism. And we could add to this ministry. 
I'm a church ministry. Uh, nor can occasional prayer meetings and training classes for Christian workers do this job. Building men and women is not that easy. It requires constant personal attention, much like a father gives to his children. This is something that no organization or class can ever do. Children are not raised by proxy. I love that statement. The example of Jesus would teach us that it can be done only by persons staying close to those whom they seek to lead. So, if we're going to accept these uh, principles as being reasonable and meaningful, it is better to decide who you're going to invest in and spend a lot of time with them, a limited number of people, versus, you know, all the amount of points that I'm sure we rack up by sitting by ourselves and thinking about all the people we'd like to minister to. Consecration is the next one. This is probably the one that, in the book at least, that has always made me the most uh, uncomfortable, partially because, again, with my attitude of uh, escaping legalism and desiring in all things to be gracious, the concept of consecration is a little bit uh, difficult. But here's how Coleman begins to describe this idea. He says, Jesus expected the men he was with to obey him. They're not required to be smart, but they had to be loyal. They became the distinguishing mark by which they were known. They were called his disciples, meaning that they were his learners or pupils of the master. It was not until much later that they started to be called Christian, although it was inevitable for in time obedient followers invariable take, invariably take on the character of their leader. And this is like super duper crazy true. It's funny as you go from church to church to church and you realize, like, I've been talking to that guy, the pastor of that church, and then find that everybody in that church shares a lot of his speech patterns. Why? Well, they listen to him a lot. They're associated with him a lot. So whether he got it from them or they got it from him, it just works out that way. But this idea, I like to think of this as involving this idea of commitment and consecration as being involving, demanding, or inviting, that the person you're discipling takes it seriously, right? So here's some examples from the Gospels, uh, Luke 16, 13. It says, No servant can serve two masters, for either hate one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Again in Mark 8, 34 and 38, through 38, when he had called these people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? And loses his own soul. Or by what or what will a, a man give in exchange for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous generation and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in his glory father, glory of his father with the holy angels. This uh, principle continues on through um, into Luke 9, 57 says, Now it, as it happened, as they journeyed on the road, and someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He said to another, Follow me. But, uh, but he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, and, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to them, No one having put his hand in the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Now again, I'm not suggesting that these passages are, are, are somehow salvific in nature at all. But it does show that Jesus had an expectation that the people in whom he was investing were going to return with some level of dedication to the task as well. 
And we usually want to be, I, maybe not you, I usually want to be so nice. Like, oh, you don't want to come? It's no big deal. Don't worry about it. Oh, no, it's fine. No, really, it's fine. I would, I would have had to cancel anyway. You know, like, right? We, we don't want to make people feel bad. They might go away. And I'm not suggesting we should guilt or, you know, try to motivate in that fashion. But it is okay to say that I am so interested in your spiritual growth that I am going to let you know that I want you to take this seriously. I want, you to, I want you to jump in on this boat with two feet as well and recognize that you're not just having fun. I've done a lot of secret discipleship in my life where I start meeting with someone and it's kind of like, it's kind of like, have you ever had a secret dating relationship where like, I'm dating her but she doesn't know she's dating me? Just me? Okay, fine. <laughs> but we do that. Like, I'm going to have this impact on them without getting any sort of like positive response because we're fun to hang out with and I'm nice and occasionally I slide in a little spiritual lesson or slide in a little reference. This is suggesting to us that as Christ demonstrated that it's worth asking for their buy-in. It's worth getting a responsive, yeah, I'm not saying I'm going to be perfect, but I do want to do this. I am committed to this process in some sense. So this is where I take consecration. Now, I do want to be extraordinarily plain on this, that this is my take on Coleman's work, along with those other books that I mentioned, all melded together. So I don't speak for Robert Coleman at all. And um, if you get to read the book, which I recommend, he doesn't speak for me either. Just find somewhere in the middle. There's some emotional challenges to this. We worry that we're asking for commitment to ourselves. That's a problem, for sure. Uh, we're, we're truly meant to be motivated by asking commitment so that they can grow and we can support them maxly. Or we worry that this is um, doesn't sound gracious enough, but remember it's all used at a greater level in the church, not a call for salvation. Uh, and finally, our commitment to Christ, not the mentor. Our commitment is to Christ, not to the mentor. So I like to use language even though I know that I'm further along in the faith maybe than they are, I like to use language like, hey, can we study the Bible together? Not, can I teach you the Bible? I think that's okay. But you're still looking for commitment in that process. Does that make sense? Small, okay. It's been an hour. What do we get, an hour and 15? You can go as long as you want. And people believe that they want to. Oh, wow. We're done until it's Challenge accepted. No. Three, is that it? <laughs> That's generous. I don't know if... Okay, sorry. I won't. I won't. It's on there. Oh, sorry. No, I'm wrong. You better stop it a little bit. What, what, what's stopping time? No, we're good. What time is it now? Three. We're done at three. We'll be doing well before three. I promise. I absolutely promise. No, no, no. It's part of my... Okay. So small numbers were not a problem. This, this is an example where people are going away, and Peter's like, people are going away, Jesus, we're losing numbers. And he's like, don't worry about it, bro. We're going to be fine, right? Total. That's the new living term. That's, that's right. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> but application, we must graciously challenge those who come to seek and to serve in the church to be dedicated to the Lord, okay? So if, especially if you're in a church observation, it's not untoward to say if you'd like to be a part of the teaching ministry then we expect this certain level of dedication if you'd like to be a part of the Sunday school ministry then we expect this certain level of dedication it's a good thing or it can be a good thing when held rightly with grace Um, knowing that there will be trials, failures seasons and where they're unavailable and where it doesn't work out the principle of recommending that level of uh, consecration is not meaningless it's still appropriate to remind them of the urgency and importance of the mission which they've been called. This, of course, must also be demonstrated in our lives. In other words, don't demand a huge commitment out of them if you're not also 
showing that same level of dedication. How many times can I say this? In the context of growth in the church, not in the context of justification. Okay. Impartation. Impartation is very simply put forth as what you're giving them, right? What you are both with your life and with the information, what do you have to offer? And so this is where it's very helpful indeed to have something to impart, whether you just decide, hey, I know Romans really well and Romans is a great place. I go over Romans with everybody and you get good at Romans, or I go over Ephesians, and whatever it is. Um, or again, if you find some other book or resource, great. Just get to know that tool and work that tool well. Um, but how did Jesus impart himself to them? What he imparted most was himself. He taught them. He entertained their questions. He provided for them, right? He provided food for them at, at various points. He served them, right? Which is a pretty remarkable thing. And he imparted himself to them by going to the cross to them. Obviously, these are not things that uh, we'll necessarily do for all, but it's something to think about in terms of the people who you believe in and whom you choose to invest in, realizing that it's more than just teaching. So, how can we impart ourselves to others? By teaching, by coaching, and I don't mean coaching sports, Little League sports. I mean by um, encouraging them along as a coach would encourage an athlete, right? By making meaningful investments when we spend time together. There will be times to just sit back and watch the game or go to a movie and not have a lot of interaction. But also, if that becomes the entirety of your friendship, then it's not discipleship, it's just friendship, which is fine. But you've set out to something different. Consecration is followed, or sorry, impartation is followed by demonstration, by showing them what to do. This might be somewhat further along, uh, but this is where, you know, if you're helping out at the homeless mission or if you're helping out in the pregnancy center, wherever it is, you bring them along with you, right? You demonstrate what you do to serve the Lord so that they, even if they're not going to necessarily be involved in that same kind of ministry, they learn what it means to serve the Lord, right? So, um, yeah. It could be as simple as, hey, the church potluck's coming up. Come over to my house. We'll make cookies together or whatever. I felt it took a little bit of umbrage to that whole, like, it's not just making chocolate chip cookies because that's one of my favorite spiritual gifts (laughs) 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 is when people make sweets for church. I really like that, if you couldn't have guessed. All right, here's Cole Megan. Jesus saw that his disciples learned his way of living with God and man. He recognized that it was not enough just to get people into his spiritual communion. His disciples needed to know how his experience was to be maintained and shared if it was to be perpetuated in evangelism. Of course, in a technical sense, life proceeds action. But in a thoroughly practical point of view, we live by what we do. We must breathe, eat, exercise, and carry on work normally if we are to grow. Where these functions of the body are neglected, life will cease to be. That's why the effort of Jesus to get across to his followers the secrets of his spiritual influence need to be considered as a deliberate course of his master's strategy. He knew it was important. So, Jesus demonstrated prayer. He departed to pray often. He didn't tell them to go pray often. He just did it. And they picked that up. He prayed publicly, and they saw that. He demonstrated soul winning and apologetics. They witnessed him having these conversations with the Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, and others. They demonstrated compassion and mercy, and he taught public school sermons and messages. Sorry, public school? No, that's wrong. Jesus demonstrated teaching in his public sermons and messages. So he showed them by teaching them, but he also taught them how to teach. Jesus, the public school teacher, I mean. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I definitely wouldn't miss that class. Um, So, 
finally, class is always in session. This is an realizing that every day is an opportunity, even if you're on a down day or an off day or a sad day, that could be the most important day that you do make an investment in someone because they get to see what happens when you're weak and when you fail and when you falter and how you deal with your failures. Because ultimately, right, that is one of the most difficult things that humans have to deal with is, I blew it again, what do I do? Did I run out of grace? Of course not. So, application. Demonstrating the faith with our lives, including young leaders in visitation, uh, leadership, prayer meetings, leadership meetings. Um, like I say, however that works. Vulnerability and humility when we fail is most important. Delegation is the idea of giving them jobs or tasks. Now, this is where I think we fall off the rails a lot because we get so excited about our ministry and what I do for the church that I would never let anyone else do it, right? And so it's one of the fascinating things is I've tried to and continue to massage this ethos, these ideas into our church family. The most common uh, pushback I get, but that's my job. If I let her do it, then what will I do? Calm down, Tiger. We'll find something else for you to do. Or you'll have fun doing it together. Or when you're sick, just this idea of, of being territorial about my ministry and I need to keep people away so I get to do it is not a thoroughly Christian idea. In fact, quite to the contrary, you should be working to bring people in and giving them opportunities and specifically opportunities to fail. Right? So the big reason why this is hard, um, and these passages you've got in your handout, you can check me and see if you disagree, and then we can still be friends. But it's just easier to do it myself, right? It's so much easier for me to, to lead a, a small group Bible study. That, that's like 10 minutes of preparation. And I'll do a better job than most of the people I disciple, because I've been at it for like 25 years. And yet, even though it's going to take me more work to train and encourage this, younger, this other person to do it, and they're not going to do it as well once they do do it. It's far better for them to get to have that opportunity than to me to, to peacock and show how neat and great I am at it. At some point, isn't the Holy Spirit doing all the heavy lifting anyway? So that means that it should be no problem for me to give up my pulpit to the young men that I'm discipling to teach. There should be no problem for us to open up the opportunity for someone else to teach or lead in your small group study or whatever it is. Um, it should be something that we desire to share. So here's your application with that person you're discipling. Give them opportunities to serve or provide them opportunities to teach. Create support and facilitate opportunities to lead. This whole generation lacks pluck. They just lack courage and motivation. It's like they are afraid to start things because they're afraid to fail. I have no idea sociologically why this is the case, but it absolutely seems to be so. You get these young people who are, they come and they learn and they're great. Like, you can teach. And they go, no, I don't know, I might do it wrong. Like, of course you're going to do it wrong. Absolutely. If God really does hold us accountable to everything that we've taught, I'm going to have a really difficult time at the Bema seat. And that's probably true, and I can deal with it. Life, life will go on. I've fallen the grace of Christ. But the reality is, if you don't do it poorly, you're never going to do it well. And so if you're going to wait till everybody's 50 years old and perfect, then there's not going to be anything getting done. And, and we'll be so obsessed with our own thinking. Anyway, okay. Never mind. Supervision. So you've given that opportunity. They totally blew it, or they did great, or they did okay. The next thing to do is come back and run through that with them. So Luke 10, 17 through 20 is our picture. He sent out the 70, right? He gave them that job. They come back, and they're super excited. Why? Because, Lord, even the demons are subject to your name. What does he do? 
He brings them back to earth. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning in heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions. But, but, but nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in the book of heaven. So he says, you guys are getting really excited about this cool stuff that's happening, but here's what's really exciting. Right? He corrected them. He brought them back down to earth. He brought them back down to a way of thinking. Improved their thinking. More examples of this, but I think it's pretty plain. So here's some application points for this. Review their performance. Encourage, encourage, encourage. Explain how improvements can be made. Encourage, encourage, encourage. And then provide an opportunity for them to do it again, to try to correct it, do it better next time, whatever it is. Make sense? Now, this is an interesting thing about the whole process because I hate giving negative feedback or constructive feedback. I don't like telling people, like, if I think that you're unattractive, you'll never hear it from me. And if I think that you're a bad singer, I will never tell you. And if I think that the, 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 the cookies were bad, I will never tell you. Like, that's just not how I operate. However, it is a sign of ultimate love and care when you can lovingly and graciously provide corrective feedback to someone. So what I've learned in my life of cowardice is that by doing that, I wasn't sparing their feelings. I was making them feel unloved. Oh, you don't care enough to help me get better at this. You don't care enough to also provide instructive or corrective feedback. Now, of course, we can go the other way and provide so much that they just get discouraged. That's why I've got, I should have probably added another step of encouragement here. But um, don't be afraid. And, and even put it in context. Like, you know, I'm not sure, I'm not sure this is a rule, but I would do it differently this way. That kind of feedback is going to be meaningful to them and give them confidence uh, in that. Finally, last step, Reproduction. Let's read this. It says, Jesus intended for the disciples to produce his likeness in and through the church being gathered out of the world. Thus his ministry and the spirit would be duplicated manyfold by his ministry in the lives of the disciples. Through them in others like them, it would not continue or sorry, it would continue to expand an ever enlarging circumference until the multitude might know a similar way to the opportunity which they had known with the master by the strategy. The conquest of the world was only a matter of time and their faithfulness to his plan. You ever think about how terrifying it was that at one point in human history that just one well-timed like bomb attack, I know there weren't bombs, or, or some attack from a, another nation could have wiped out Christianity entirely? Like all the people who knew about Jesus were in a room that's wild. And where was Jesus' plan B? Like, okay, well, if that doesn't work out, they'll still have the book. Oh, they wouldn't have a book. The book came through this plan A. And so if that's where the Lord thought it was worth putting all of his stuff, and I say this as someone who publishes, someone who writes, someone who puts crap on, stuff online, sorry. Like, that wasn't where Jesus put his time and his money spirit emotional yeah it made his investment he made his investment in a couple folks who would go on to change the world by the power of his grace and life and all this yes but maybe if we worked in the currency that Jesus works in our church would look a lot different so application encourage them to make disciples in the same manner Encourage them to begin their discipleship, own discipleship relationships. Give them tools to help with that task. 
and pray with them over some people in their lives whom, in whom they are invested. So um, I promised we'd end by three, and by three we are ending. But my encouragement to you is make a plan. Take these last kind of few minutes and see who the Lord lays on your heart. Is it uh, that you need to spend more time with your husband and your wife around spiritual, spiritually growing and encouraging one another? Is it that you need to spend, or that you want to spend more time with your kids and be intentional about this process? Is it about that one person at work whom the Lord's laid on your heart? But take that moment and uh, make a plan to be seriously invested in them. Find people who are faithful and ask yourself if you are so bold. Who's in your three circle, your tightest circle? It doesn't have to be three. Who's in your 12th circle, that next rung out that you have an impact on, but not quite as much as the three? Who are those masses? Maybe this is your workplace, maybe this is your neighborhood, and how are you having an impact on them? And finally, how are you impacting the masses uh, with the message of your life? Um, in two minutes or less, does anybody have any comments or questions? Any examples in your own church how you're playing this through? Yeah. You're asking me? Oh, okay, I thought it was a general, like a question for everybody. Yes, a wonderful point. Like, so when I came to Fort Collins Bible Church, it was um, 16 elderly people, and as the Lord brought uh, people into our life, we had some young people, and we got to work through some basic curriculums and times together. We uh, have moved from being a 16-person church to a church of probably not more than 65 or 70. I've got four elders and um, about 10 deacons on the board that are on that board and it's just been a gift because we got to see this church kind of from a very small phase move forward but in each of whom I have invested personally so it's interesting we don't have fights on our boards we have a lot of mutual love and respect and now my three co-elders aren't um, underneath me like I'm the pastor and we're all shoulder to shoulder uh, because I spent years in regular meetings, years in giving them opportunities to teach and fill the pulpit when they were really, 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 really bad at it. And we didn't think about, oh, we're going to lose so many people. You know, if we just, oh, we can't do that. People people come back to hear the best. No. So, yeah, my this is my personal philosophy of ministry. And I can tell you that if you want to get rich and have a huge church, this is the worst possible way you can go. This is such a bad idea. Like abandon ship now and find someone more intelligent to listen to. But if you want to be surrounded by people with whom you have an intimate spiritual connection, that is connection through Christ, and if you want to see growth in people's lives, this is the only way to go, I would argue. The only way to go. We hear a lot about pastoral burnout. It doesn't happen if you're invested in people like this. You might choose to change careers and move on. Pooch. Anybody else? I don't keep going. I have another one. Anybody else have a question? Go ahead. Take the time. Pooching. Okay. Let's <laughs> <laughs> talk about this. So, so it's easy to go through a Gibbs program or for Collins Bible College and have a lot. Of notes, your theology can be just head head not headology. How are you guys helping these? You know, three or four students you have have the relational side. How are you helping them not just be students to learn how to have a heart? That's a, one of the hardest things. That, and even in Gibbs, we're like, you know, we we should have an internship. It should be more shoulder to shoulder. Um. And obviously I would have 
no real advice because I've always been the curriculum, and now I've trained and I got three other guys who are also the curriculum. If you want to make that, if that makes sense, so it's always been really easy. Small church is easy that way. Once you get bigger, it's just tougher, right? To to vet through because I yeah, uh, tougher to vet through. So I, I can't pretend to give any truly excellent advice except to say that at Fort Collins Bible College, because it's also such a tiny little operation. Once someone's finished a semester or a year. We're saying, hey, can, would you mind helping out with the, hey, could you lead the men's study? Could you, you know, stuff like that. So, um, again, in the context of our tiny little church, there's just enough jobs to do that you can always help include and invite and envelop and invest. Well, now we're past our time, and I've failed you. Personally, I... That was my goal. Yeah, riddled with guilt. Can I pray for us before we go? Heavenly Father, how I praise you and thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. For all that occurred in the incarnation, you came down to earth, you took on our, uh, our humanity, you took our flesh upon you, you lived among us, you taught us, you invested, you discipled, you cared for these 12, and even one of them uh, betrayed, O oh Lord, but the other 11 were so magnificently transformed by the power of your work, by your work on the cross, by your Holy Spirit, and by the example of the life which they shared with you, that they went on to make other disciples. So might we, based upon your great grace and love towards us love one another with that sacrificial care and desire to spur and encourage one another on towards love and good deeds towards a life of godliness lord i pray that this next generation of pastors and teachers and bible school leaders and um and, and sunday school teachers will all come forth so built up so equipped and so prepared to build up another generation that when you come lord you find us regularly investing in others with the love and grace that you provided. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.